I'm Damian Bulwa. Today on Fifth Admission, explosive new details in the killing of Banco Brown. On Monday, San Francisco District Attorney Brooke Jenkins made news in two ways. One, she affirmed she will not file charges against the Walgreens security guard. His name is Michael Anthony, who shot and killed Banco Brown on the evening of April 27th. Jenkins cited Anthony's claim of self-defense. Two, the DA released video footage of the shooting, along with a great deal of other evidence, including the full police interrogation of Anthony. A note here, we've published everything at sfchronicle.com, including that video. Please be advised some of the images and documents are graphic. Viewer discretion is advised. My guests today to talk about all this are two Chronicle reporters, Rachel Swan and Kevin Fagan. They've been covering the killing of Banco Brown, which has touched a nerve in San Francisco like few other cases. Among the questions, how did the alleged theft of a few small items escalate into deadly force? And why didn't the DA want to take this case to trial? Also, what are the lessons here in a city wrestling with what to do about high rates of property crime life shoplifting? Should Banco Brown have been confronted by a guard at all? Rachel and Kevin, thanks for coming on Fifth and Mission. I'm going to start with you, Rachel. What happened on Monday? What did Brooke Jenkins do? Brooke Jenkins released a trove of video and documents on Monday, surveillance footage that showed the entire incident and the aftermath, an interview with the shooter, and also her final decision saying she's declined to file charges. Okay, and there's been a lot of questions, obviously, from people about whether she would charge. She initially made a decision to charge, but then she might reassess. This is it, though, Rachel. This is this guard is not being charged. This is her final decision. Yeah. Okay. And Rachel, what does that main video show happened inside the Walgreens? It shows a really kind of frenetic confrontation. We see Banco Brown sort of striding to exit the store holding a bag. We see the guards step into Banco's path. We see them start to shove each other and tussle, and there's a tussle that goes for about a minute. Many people say it looks like the guard is the aggressor. He does take a few swings at Banco Brown. He takes multiple swings at Banco, and I mean, Jenkins acknowledges this in her report. You know, it does also appear that Banco Brown is fighting back. At one point, Anthony has Brown on the ground. Brown is resisting, trying to get up. They're kind of rolling around and tussling around for a little while. And then, you know, the guard has Banco pinned to the ground. It sort of seems subdued for a moment. He lets go. Banco Brown gets up, collects the bag, moves as though to exit, um, is backing out of the store. Appears to take, I, I guess, what you could call sort of a fighting posture, you know, like as though they're about to square off as he's backing out of the store. He does appear to be sort of like hands at his sides, like, you know, sort of leaning forward, and that's when the guard shoots him. Okay, and you report that he had taken perhaps one or two steps back when that shot is fired. He had definitely taken one or two steps back. He does appear to, you know, I mean, we get into, like, Adam-level detail in these videos. He does appear to be, you know, like, have one foot forward and possibly be slightly putting his weight on that foot at the moment the shot is fired, but he has been backing away. And they are facing each other. Okay, again, people can watch that video if they wish at sfchronicle.com. And Rachel, I want to ask you about the reaction around the city 
in a bit. There are people who are still saying that Brooke Jenkins has done the wrong thing here, including city supervisors. But Kevin, I do want to go over to you. I want to ask you first about this, this decision that happens even before the decision to fire. And that's the one to physically try to stop Brown from allegedly shoplifting. It starts this whole cascade of events. Was the guard supposed to do that? Did he do the right thing? And what does the guard say about that decision? Yeah, he was uh, he was allowed to do that. The security company that employed him had sent out a directive saying that the guards should be confronting shoplifters. And this directive ran out just maybe days beforehand, according to the evidence. Yeah, the, the, the whole issue is kind of fuzzy back and forth, up and down, about whether whether to do this or not. It varies on the business, varies on the town. Some stores say, don't confront, it could go bad, like this one did. And others say, look, we're tired of losing thousands of dollars. Stop these guys from doing it. So this guy was within his directive, again, to go ahead and try to stop Banco Brown. Now, pulling the gun, ideally, when you're trained correctly, according to a lot of security experts, within and without the security guard industry, you're supposed to do a de-escalation cascade, essentially. You start out with your words, which this guy did, apparently, but the de-escalation did not stretch on. The whole confrontation from first moment of, uh, of contact to death was less than a minute, and these things usually go fast like that. You have to be very careful and very calm and cool and trained. So, the way it usually goes and the way it's supposed to go is you speak to the shoplifter, then you go to a next level, which would be you know maybe some contact, then you go to a baton or pepper spray or even a taser or something other than a gun. The gun is your absolute last resort. But to be clear, Kevin, there are stores in San Francisco and there are guards who would let a person go if as in this video shows, if someone is is trying to leave and actually sort of trying to push past the guard. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Because you want to minimize the risk of violence, injury, death. All that stuff is not worth, you know, certainly $14 worth of candy in this case. That's that's the, the, the feeling that we heard from everyone. Minimize the risk to both parties. Yeah, because the security, security guard in his interview said that he'd popped out his shoulder in an earlier confrontation. You know, he was afraid of, uh, apparently, of being stabbed because he says the Bank of Brown told him, I'm going to stab you. Rachel, now a lot of people, including city officials, have seen this video that people were trying to see for the last couple of weeks. What was the reaction from folks who've been pushing for the release of this video, including city supervisors? We haven't heard from everybody yet, but we're starting to hear from officials as they watch the video. One person who's spoken out is Supervisor Aaron Peskin, and he is going to call for the state attorney general and the U.S. Department of Justice to investigate the video. So he doesn't agree with Brooke Jenkins' interpretation, and he had a, a very strong statement saying that, you know, stealing a small amount of candy isn't worth the death penalty. You could debate whether that's hyperbole or not, but he is clearly condemning her final decision today. I have that quote here, Rachel. Uh, Aaron Peskin, the supervisor, said, quote, I understand people are afraid of crime, a fear being stoked by too many politicians and their political allies, but this is not a choice between justice and safety. We can have both. 
I want to take a quick break. I'm going to come back with Kevin Fagan and Rachel Swan right after this on Fifth and Mission. You're listening to Fifth and Mission. If you have a comment or there's a story you think we should cover, let us know. You can email us at fifth, that's F-I-F-T-H, at sfchronicle.com, or leave us a voicemail at 415-777-6156. Welcome back to Fifth and Mission. I'm Damian Bolwood, joined by two Chronicle reporters, Rachel Swan and Kevin Fagan. We're talking about the killing of Banco Brown on April 27th inside a San Francisco Walgreens. And the decision on Monday by Brooke Jenkins, the city's district attorney, not to file charges against security guard Michael Anthony. Okay, I want to go back to what we see on this new video, Rachel. When they are scuffling the guard and Banco Brown... There is something that very important that happens that everyone was talking about, and that is that the guard says he heard Banco Brown say, I'm going to stab you. But correct me if I'm wrong, other witnesses do not hear this. They do not report it hearing this or are perhaps not close enough to hear it if it happened. But it's a, a very key detail, right? Why is that? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually glad you made that distinction, Damien. We don't know if they were close enough to hear it. They did not report hearing it. There are two witnesses quoted in the DA's report. That means that her decision, which, as we know, is extremely consequential, Monday, rests a lot on the guard's word. Only he knows whether or not he heard a credible threat from Brown about a knife that never materialized. And that's because self-defense for a guard who has a gun, an, an unarmed Banco Brown, is, is perhaps not enough to have what you need in a self-defense case, which is that fear of real bodily injury or death. That's right. To have a credible self-defense, you know, you have to have a reasonable belief that you are in imminent danger of death or great bodily injury. Kevin, can you, again, I mean, you've been talking to guards around the city shopkeepers. This is not a situation they want to end up in, and they don't often. I mean, is this Is this something that we've seen in San Francisco before, or is this somewhat unprecedented? Uh, We've seen it before. In Japantown, a security guard was killed. It doesn't happen that often. That's that's what I'm trying to get to. But it does happen. And the security guards and shopkeepers I talked to did not want to get into this kind of situation. No one wants to handle death, have a death on their hands. They don't want their staff being killed. It's a conundrum for them, though, because... They feel they have to try to stop this epidemic of theft, not any way they can, but any way they can within reason. So a lot of shopkeepers are just handling it themselves. I talked to one set of staff members and relatives at a cigarette store who swarmed shoplifters when they tried to run out. These were big, burly guys who uh, just used their own muscle to get the job done. A few doors down, there was a woman running a uh, cell phone store, and her staff would use pepper spray. It depends on who's coming in. If a thief looks really formidable, big, and certainly carrying a weapon, you're not going to want to confront them generally because your staff is not going to be armed. But Kevin, this is a chaotic video. I mean, are we to expect that guards are going to have the kind of training needed to make these decisions? Not really, according to security experts. There's a big difference. 
Your typical security guard gets about 32 hours of training, an arms course, and a certificate. And then if they go to batons and and pepper spray and and non-lethal weapons, they need permits for those too. Your typical police officer gets 34 weeks of police academy, 16 weeks in the field, and continuous training and probation for months and months after that and throughout their career with the extra training courses. There's no real comparison. And determining how to conduct de-escalation techniques is tricky. And you have to figure out how to do it with your words then how to do it with a little more presence, how to maintain distance between you and the, the shoplifter. And then, you know, escalating from a baton to a pepper spray to a taser. The last thing you want to reach for is a gun. And again, this confrontation that happened between the security guard and Banco Brown lasted less than a minute. It was something that should not be happening that quickly, according to all the security guys we talked to. Now, Rachel, I want to take us to the last moments of this where the critical decisions are made. We see in that video that that the security guard allows Branko Brown to get up. Branko Brown, as you said, grabs a bag, moves toward the doorway. The, uh, the guard pulls out his sidearm, his gun, his pistol, keeps it at his side. Branko Brown, as you say, squares his body around near the doorway, is taking a couple of steps backward and then the guard fires. Rachel, first of all, there is some testimony about spitting in this moment. What do we know about whether Banco Brown spit on the guard during this last exchange? What we know is that both of the witnesses who are quoted in the DA's report said that they witnessed Banco Brown spitting on the guard. We also know that the guard perceived Banco Brown as in a stance preparing to lunge at him. We don't see an actual lunge in the video. What is in question is whether, you know, it's not exactly clear when the spitting happened. I mean, a lot of the really critical moments in this video happen kind of almost simultaneously, right? Within like two seconds. But, you know, there is a question about whether what was interpreted as a lunging movement could have been Spitting. Gotcha. But obviously a disagreement between Brooke Jenkins, the guard who says, I felt threatened, and the family. I mean, we we heard from John Burris today, didn't we? The the lawyer for Bank of Brown's family who feels like that last decision to fire was reckless. Yeah. And Burris definitely described the guard as the aggressor in this situation. So I have one last question. Uh, throw it over to you, Kevin, and let me know if you want to weigh in too, Rachel. But this case has really resonated in San Francisco. Why? Well, there's a lot of theft going on. Shopkeepers and shoppers alike are freaked out because there's an impression, which is to some extent supported by some data, but it's generally considered to be a bit overblown that you know every store is being ripped off all the time and shoplifters are coming willy-nilly in and out of, of stores. And their videos, that's that's one thing. You can go online and catch a whole bunch of videos of people nonchalantly walking out with boosted stuff in their arms. So people are, ah, they're freaked out. And it's, it's top of the uh, conversation, along with all the other things that San Francisco is taking a hit for these days. People want it to stop. Uh, they see this kind of confrontation, and it's 
it's violent. Anytime it, it, something like this gets captured so closely on video, because there's security video, there's witness video, there are angry confrontations after the shooting from people walking around and, and coming up to the scene. It's poking a, a stick in the hornet's nest. People want this thing solved. Shopkeepers want it solved. The city leaders want it solved. Tourists want it solved. And, and residents want it solved. And it's not getting solved. Uh, there are a lot of reasons that go into why shoplifting can go up or down. And getting a grip on them is like uh, putting your hands on jello. And Rachel, it also plays into a debate in San Francisco, essentially how to treat crime, essentially. And Brooke Jenkins is more in the moderate camp in San Francisco, and her critics believe that she's not making the right decision. It seems once again we have a debate over whether Brooke Jenkins is doing the right thing or whether she favors, quote-unquote, the law enforcement establishment. What's interesting is this is not an officer, you know, and I, I keep having to remind people today that we're not talking about a police shooting. We keep accidentally almost saying the word officer when we mean security guard. And I mean, this guy is a civilian, but he is the first, from what we've observed in Brooke Jenkins' tenure, this is the first person in a uniform in that position of authority who has shot an unarmed person. So at some point during her tenure, there was going to be a, a police shooting that would be her first real critical test of leadership. And for better or worse, you know, this is it. And then it happens during shoplifting, which is this third rail thing. It happens downtown in a city there. The downtown is struggling. So it seems to kind of touch everything. I just wanted to point out that this is different than a lot of the shootings that we have covered. Both the shooter and the victim are black. The Both the shooter and the victim are homeless. And the victim beyond that is a trans homeless person. There are elements in here that draw all kinds of constituencies to it, all kinds of assumptions to it. The bottom line is one person shot another person dead. And the like Rachel said, the person who did the shooting had a uniform on. Yeah. And, and I, I'm so glad you brought that up, Kevin, because it's so messy in this case. You know, I mean, I, I find it very hard, or, or I think a lot of people are finding it very hard to villainize the shooter. I mean, he's a formerly homeless civilian, probably not paid much more than minimum wage, but he wears a uniform, you know? But I mean, so so people are kind of conflating this with the the war of, you know, Walgreens perpetuated a lot of the stuff about unchecked retail theft in the, in the city, sort of animated the campaign that led former district attorney Chase Boudin to be recalled. I'll spare you all that. But, you know, like a lot of people are kind of putting this on Walgreens. There's some familiar villains here. All right. Well, I'm going to leave it at that. Kevin Fagan and Rachel Swan, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Again, to watch the video of the Banco Brown killing in a San Francisco Walgreens, viewer discretion is advised, but please go to sfchronicle.com. I want to thank my two guests today. They are Chronicle reporters Rachel Swan and Kevin Fagan. To King Kaufman for producing this episode, and thank you for listening. <laughs> 